Mark 2, beginning in verse 18, says the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and they said to him, that's to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the terror is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts, and the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And Father, we Humbly ask and pray in the name of Jesus that as we continue now in our worship of you, having sung and prayed and now opening the scriptures before you in your presence, Lord, we're just asking that you'd give us a worshipful heart that would have an ear to hear and a heart that's receptive to whatever you want to plant into our soul today to help us to walk in your truth and follow your will. So Lord, we ask now, speak by your spirit through what you've spoken here in the word of God. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's good on occasion to ask ourselves what it is that God desires foremost from us as people. I think sometimes we can tend to confuse that. And I think we should ask ourselves that question on occasion. Is God really concerned most about sort of religious rule keeping where we maintain perhaps a strict code of regulations or spiritual duties or rituals and trying to keep that code? Or is God primarily concerned about relational experience with him? That is where we're finding enjoyment in a meaningful, personal interaction with God, enjoying the Lord's presence, having an experience with him. Contrary to our wrong thinking at times, I'd say the latter from what God's word shows us is what he is foremost concerned about, meaningful relationship with him, having a regular experience with him. We see this revealed and we really see this something, I think, being emphasized by our Lord Jesus, even in this text in front of us this morning. In this section, we see Jesus, again, remember who was God living among us in human flesh as a man, we see Jesus in this section being confronted really for not honoring 
religious regulations and rules, but instead highly esteeming relationship. And we also see in the verses in front of us that just keeping religious rules and focusing predominantly on codes and regulations tends to make a heart critical and also tends to cause the human heart to be more dull spiritually than sensitive spiritually. Whereas focusing on meaningful relationship with God, that is what tends to cause the heart to be most spiritually sensitive, which I would venture to say is the highest ideal, to have a spiritually sensitive heart. Look with me back in verse 18 as our passage begins. It tells us in verse 18 that it was the disciples of John, that's remember John the baptizer who we looked at, his disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they say to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus is challenged here regarding his seeming lack of requirement, you might say, of his followers to observe a specific spiritual practice. Fasting in particular is the subject that they bring up. And it appears that Jesus spent an amount of his time on the earth feasting with people. In fact, you remember just the very last section we looked at in Mark's gospel. Jesus calls Levi, this tax collector, this very immoral man, to follow him. He leaves behind everything, his lucrative income, his job status, all of the things that were going on in his life, and he makes a decision to leave it behind and follow Jesus. And one of the things that he does as a first experience of having a changed and transformed life as a follower of Jesus, remember, is he seems to sort of host a feast and a meal for Jesus, and he invites over all of his friends who were scoundrels and hoodlums and rotten people too. It says tax collectors and sinners were there spending time with Jesus, and they were making decisions now to follow Jesus. Seeing Levi's changed life, they were choosing to follow Christ as well. And again, remember, this was bothering the religious leaders. So in our prior section, Jesus is just feasting together with a group of people, and lives are being changed, and people are making decisions to follow Christ. It appears that as Jesus is feasting with people, that the, the Pharisees and even John's disciples, they're diligently fasting, more focused on that and self-denial, and they now come to Jesus, and they're bothered by this. Now, when it tells us here it's the disciples of John and the Pharisees, important to just remember who this would be referring to. The disciples of John, the word disciple, remember, means a committed follower, not just someone who listens to lectures, but someone who actually tries to learn and follow the ways of another person. So these were those who were strong adherents to following the ways of John the baptizer. John, remember, being really the last of the Old Testament prophets who spoke messages concerning the coming of Christ as the Messiah. Remember that John's ministry was before Jesus' death and resurrection, so he's really the last, if you would, of the Old Testament prophetic figures pointing to Christ as the Messiah, and as a part of his special calling, separated as the forerunner to prepare the way for Messiah. Remember, John's unique calling and lifestyle was one of strict self-denial, very similar to Numbers chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow, where one lived in a very strict way 
of self-denial. And, and purposely, John refrained from indulging certain things to honor his unique ministry calling in the way that he was called to walk out his ministry. And John apparently had adherence to following his ways and embracing his rather, we might say, ascetic lifestyle. That is, he lives with strict denial of participating in certain things. The Pharisees, and we'll see a whole lot of them in the Gospels, these were a, a sect of religious Jews who basically somewhat came into being around the time of the captivity, who were highly concerned about trying to preserve the Mosaic law. And with a really good intention originally, they were very strict about trying to preserve the Mosaic law to make sure it was honored and preserved through the time of the captivity. Yet unfortunately, their zeal religiously got a little bit extreme and out of hand. And what started out as a very good intention became very out of balance and their ideas of holiness became very strict and somewhat severe and what they began to do, the Pharisees, is develop hundreds of different ideas and religious traditions. We have the Mishnah and the Talmud, the oral traditions, the, the written traditions, and all these things were basically their interpretive ideas of how to keep the Mosaic law. So it wasn't God's word wasn't enough. Then they built commentaries upon commentaries, oral and written traditions. This is how you obey those particular scriptures. You also have to follow this rule and keep this ritual and do that routine. And they became really nothing more in a lot of ways over time than a rigid, self-righteous religious sect who were nothing really but a bunch of very legalistic religious rule keepers. And they became very critical of anyone who did not live according to their practices spiritually. And they looked down upon anyone who would not live in their way because they considered their way the way of holiness. They were much more focused on keeping their created religious system of man-made religious ideas and rules than they really were even the observance of God's word itself. Jesus rebukes them for that on occasion, for esteeming the traditions of men as more important than actually obeying just what the written word of God said. And they were more concerned about those things even than a real experience with God and helping people. Well, it's these disciples of John and the Pharisees, it says, who in verse 18 <clears throat> were fasting and were bothered and concerned why Jesus' disciples did not seem to be doing things the way they were. Now, again, fasting is the denial of bodily need to focus upon that which is spiritual instead. And we know, according to the word of God, the only required fast, and I emphasize required, the only required fast for a Jew, according to the law of Moses, was on the day of atonement. That was a day when there was a required fast, when they were to afflict their souls, and it was idiomatic language that they were to deny themselves and fast in a prescribed manner, according to the law, one day a year. So one day a year, there was, a, according to the Mosaic law, a prescribed day to fast. Yet the Pharisees, because of this pattern they had gotten into, they routinely fasted two times per week. And it became a discipline of their lifestyle where twice a week they fasted in ritual adherence as a discipline 
And it appears John's disciples as well, kind of trying to emulate their, their, their leader's lifestyle in a similar way that they fasted quite a bit more routinely as well. Now, fasting is something that was done and is done even in this day still for many different reasons. At times, fasting is done to deny fleshly longings, to focus more on dependence upon God and submission to God's will instead of human desires and, and bodily appetites. At times, we see fasting attached to connection to repentance of sin and refusing bodily appetites. At times in Scripture, we see fasting as an expression of deep sorrow and mourning and grief. And oftentimes, we see fasting connected with prayer, where one would, in a sense, not focus on the bodily desires, but couple it together with prayer and focus on the things of the Lord. Now, to some then who fasted, as well as those who fast now, sometimes fasting becomes viewed, if I could use this language, as almost like a religious bargaining tool with God. So it's almost as if if I fast and I deny myself and I pray, my fasting sort of is a bargaining tool. It almost obligates God that he's got to basically take care of what I'm asking because I'm doing my thing and I'm paying him with my sacrifice. And so therefore, God owes me the obligation of, in a sense, repaying my fasting and my diligence. Now, again, I'm not saying that's the reason that all people fast, but sometimes that perspective comes into being is almost as if sort of that's a fair transaction. If I fast and deny myself and pray, then God's got to give me what I want. And sometimes we can get a little bit of out balance with that idea. Whatever the case, this spiritual lifestyle of fasting, as you can imagine, we know with the Pharisees historically, at least twice a week, they would fast. Two out of the seven days a week, they would fast, and they observed Jesus and his followers living much differently, certainly not the way they're living, and I can't help but to think, in their hungry crankiness, they now come to Jesus, and they confront him and say, wait a minute, why aren't your disciples living as holy as we are? Why aren't they doing things our way? Why aren't they following our system of spirituality? They're not keeping our routines. They're not following the same spiritual rituals that we follow, and certainly we've got the corner on holiness. We understand what it means to be deeply spiritual, and that's why we're so angry that you're not spiritual. And they come to Jesus now, and they begin to express concern and it seems almost frustration why aren't your disciples fasting to which verse 19 jesus answers he says to them can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them as long as we have or they have the bridegroom with them they cannot fast the idea is it's just not the right time for it but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus' response to their question indicates that his followers understand the importance of being spiritually sensitive to what the Lord is actually doing rather than focusing on religious formality and understanding that it matters more 
to be spiritually sensitive to what the Lord is doing rather than upkeeping and maintaining formalities of what one perceives as religious or spiritual. Jesus uses the analogy here in verse 19 and 20 of a wedding feast and proper conduct during the wedding feast celebration to honor what is going on appropriately. In ancient Jewish weddings, marriage, interestingly enough, was esteemed as so important in the culture, so valuable, so special, that when a bride and a groom finally came together in marriage, all of the wedding guests would be invited to a celebration that would last an entire week. Imagine paying for that, fathers. All three of my daughters are married now, so I'm finally recuperating in some ways in my life. But imagine a week-long celebration. But that was how important they esteemed marriage to be. So all the guests would come, and for an entire week, they, week, they would be feasting, and there'd be this festive atmosphere. And it was this exciting thing to rejoice in what God was doing, and there was all this happy celebration and partaking of food all week long. So to come to a wedding celebration where everyone's celebrating and happy and they're feasting and dancing and singing and to go sit in the corner and say, sorry, I don't want to play. I'm fasting because I'm spiritual. That would not only be awkward, it would actually really be very insensitive to what was happening, and it would be missing the whole point of the wedding celebration. You would be completely inconsistent to what was happening at that time. Something wonderful was going on, a happy celebration, joyful experience was the appropriate response. That's what Jesus means in verse 19 when he says, can the friends of the bridegroom, the, the, the groom who's finally got his bride, can they fast while they're together with the bridegroom? As long as they have the bridegroom still with them, the idea is at the celebration, they cannot fast. It's not the right time for it. It would be completely inappropriate and wrong. Of course, Jesus here is picturing himself as the bridegroom being among them, and that is one of the metaphors we find in the Bible regarding our Lord Jesus, that he is like a groom and that you and I, his people, are the church, the bride of Christ. And that Jesus, in a sense, does much like a groom does for a bride in the sense that that groom, when he falls in love with his bride, he makes preparations for them to be able to share a life experience together. He goes, he prepares a place, he proposes an invitation to her to enter into a lifelong marital relationship, to enter into a lifelong meaningful partnership together, that they could live together. And Jesus spiritually does the same for us. Jesus loves us. He prepares what's necessary for us to be in relationship with him. John 14, he even says he's going to prepare a place for us and that he's going to come back and pick us up just like the groom would go build an addition onto their father's house. And when the father said it was ready, then the groom could leave and go pick up his bride and he could bring the bride home. And Jesus has made what's necessary preparation. He's, he's paid the dowry, the bride price. And Jesus invites us into a relationship with him. So the Bible uses this picture of Christ as a groom and the church as a bride. And because Jesus, the bridegroom, was together with his disciples, 
Jesus says, how can they be sad? They're together with the groom. They're celebrating something wonderful. And they should be filled with pleasure and joy to be together with Jesus and celebrating what he was doing at that time. Now, Jesus says, verse 20, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Notice the change in those days. And no doubt in verse 20 there, he's giving that indication that time would come after he was with them for a season when he would be taken away from them, from his disciples, in suffering and death. And that would be an appropriate time then to go from being joyful to, in a sense, in response, being grief-stricken and being saddened because Jesus had been taken away from them. In other words, a time period would come where it would bring a change in one's attitude and activities. And here Jesus is indicating two things. I think, one, that it's more important and valuable, again, to be truly interacting with the Lord and having an experience with him and enjoying his presence and, and paying attention to what he's doing than just trying to always keep a religious routine for spirituality. And that enjoying his presence is absolutely essential. But I think perhaps even the bigger lesson is this, is that it's important to be spiritually sensitive to what the Lord is doing at that time. And Jesus describes, right now, they shouldn't be fasting and sad and afflicting themselves and grieving. They should be enjoying my presences with them. There's going to come a time when I'm going to be taken away. And at that time, okay, then maybe there would be a change where they would be saddened. Lord, why are you leaving? And, and now you're going to go back to heaven. And remember, that would concern them. And they would watch Jesus suffer and die. And this would bring grief to their hearts. And no doubt Jesus is reminding them it's important to be sensitive spiritually to what's happening and what the Lord's doing because there are times in life when it is absolutely right to be joyfully celebrating and to not be happy at certain times but be miserable would actually be a wrong response as a Christian. And yet there are going to be other times in our lives when it is right to be sober and serious a time where it may be appropriate to be sorrowful and times are more difficult and that has an intended purpose. But what's the key? Being sensitive to what the Spirit of the Lord is doing and relating properly and responding properly to what the Spirit of the Lord is doing in our lives, not just trying to keep our own perception of what we think is spiritual or someone else tells us is spiritual or religious. Life unfolds, does it not, in seasons. The key is staying yielded to what season we're in from time to time and recognizing that seasons change. What season does God have us in and responding accordingly? Perhaps, like Jesus says there in verse 19, perhaps there is a time when it's not the right time to be doing something. And it's just not the right time. Even it was not the right time for them to be fasting, Jesus said was not the right time to be sorrowful. And sometimes it's not the right time to be doing something. But then there are other times when it is the right time to be doing something. And we should change. And we should realize now things have changed. This is the right time to be doing this now. And at times God will bring us through different seasons. Again, the key is being led by the Spirit, being sensitive to what's going on. Now, Jesus goes on in verse uh, 21 and 22 to then give two more analogies of mixing things and you'll watch also mixing things that are incompatible particularly pairing something old with something new 
And he's giving spiritual lessons, of course, in this. Look with me in verse 21. He gives the first analogy. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old garment, and then the tear, notice, is actually made worse. So he uses this analogy here when seeking to address a needed repair in a garment, which was wise to go about. The garment is, is torn. It needs to be repaired. And doing it the best and proper way, not just forcing the process without consideration. So this needs to be addressed. The garment's torn. But going about it the right way, the proper way, not just forcing any old process without really thinking about the right way to approach the situation. Again, something they could totally relate to. If an existing garment had a tear in it, it was an older garment, that should be addressed. Yet it was understood that with cloth, that a brand new piece of cloth will shrink some in the process of washing and drying. Again, this was prior to the day of pre-shrunk clothing and all those kind of things where clothing actually moves still. And they understood this, and so they realized, okay, an older garment, it's already gone through that flexibility process. It's already shrunk some. It's, it's undergone adjustment. And people knew if you took a new piece of cloth that was still prone to shrinking, shrunk, prone to, to movement, and you sewed that together with an older garment, that new piece, its natural tendency to flex and to undergo change would pull away from the old piece, and it wouldn't not only fix it, it would actually make the problem worse. And that's what Jesus is saying there in verse 21. He says there in our verses, the new piece will pull away from the old. Not only does it not fix the problem, he says it actually makes the problem even worse. And I think what Jesus is indicating here is in the same way with the two pieces of cloth, the old and the new, these two things, old cloth and new cloth, they were just incompatible to be joined together. Independently, they were fine. They could serve purposes. But trying to join those two things together, they were incompatible. What's Jesus trying to convey in a sense as he's talking about spiritual realities? No doubt he's indicating to the Pharisees that he did not come just to patch up their old religious system. That was not what Jesus' intention was. Oh, well, we just got to patch up a few things about Judaism and the old ways with the Mosaic law, and, 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 and I'm here to just patch some things up a little bit. Jesus didn't want to just be added to their existing religious traditions. He didn't want to just be added into what they were doing. That would not work because much of that became dead ritualism, and Jesus wanted real relationship. Jesus came to bring a brand new covenant all together. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a completely new covenant between God and humanity based upon the finished work of Christ and the blood of Jesus by faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone and that we are no longer under the law. Christ fulfilled the law for us and we now live under grace and we're directed by the grace of God. See, Jesus wants to take, if you would, our torn and damaged life by sin and he wants to give us a brand new life altogether. He doesn't want to just patch up your old torn up life. He wants to give you a completely brand new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. One of the very appealing things about following Jesus Christ in Christianity is the reality of what every human being longs for. You mean I can have a brand new start? You mean I can have a fresh start? Yeah, that's exactly what God's intention is. God's not looking to rehab you. God's looking to put you to death, that old man, and resurrect and give you a brand new life. He says that old life and everything of your old life, it's gone. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's not even your identity anymore, God says. Old things passed away. Everything becomes new when you become a Christian. God gives you a brand new life, a brand new identity altogether. You know, he takes off our old garment of stained, damaged sinfulness, and he gives us that brand new life, that brand new identity. Ephesians 4 says it this way. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the, listen what the Bible says, the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and new holiness. Again, so important that we realize this is the process of God, that supernaturally God says that old person, that old self, that person should be dead. We're focusing on the new self, the one who's being led by the Spirit of Christ. You know, I think one of the you know, silliest things I hear Christians say sometimes, whether it's, well, you know, I don't like to, I just, I'm, I, love, I just don't like to sing in church. Well, well, listen, I've never been a singer. Well, look, God didn't save you to keep you how you were. He saved you to change you. So don't ever refer to any part, I'm just using one analogy, any part of your Christian life and say, well, I'm just not like that. Well, God says, right, that's why I saved you, because nothing of your old life was good. Right? Paul says in the book of Romans, I know that in me that is in my flesh, my, my natural, sinful, fallen nature, I know that me and my flesh, nothing good dwells. If you're still trying to look for something good and redeemable from your old life prior to following Jesus Christ, don't waste your time. <laughs> God wants all of that to die, and he wants you to be the new man, the new woman who walks in Christ with a new identity and new mindsets and new outlooks and, and let God make you the completely brand new person that he's called you to be. Again, the Bible tells us God has the power to give us a brand new heart altogether. Listen to Ezekiel 36. It says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take out your old stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you, and you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Again, God wants to give to us spiritually a completely new existence. He doesn't want to patch up our old life or patch up an old religious way. Jesus said, I'm not here to patch up Judaism. I'm here to fulfill the law and introduce Christianity, the new covenant based in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, the lesson of their error here, I think briefly, just on a practical level, reminds us of some important things too. And perhaps it may be this for some of our lives this morning. You know, sometimes just trying to patch up an existing thing and put it back together with a quick fix, that may not be the right approach. And sometimes we can do this in life, in all types of areas. We're trying to patch an existing thing up and put it back together. 
And it may be that that's not the right approach. Sometimes our mindset thinks things like this. Well, maybe if we just add some new thing in, that'll be the solution to fix this. We'll just patch up the old thing. We, we just need a new, some kind of new thing, add something new into this thing, and we, we can fix it if we do that. But let me ask, what if that old existing thing, like a garment, has served its purpose? And maybe God is saying, it's time for a whole new thing. Stop trying to patch up the old thing. It's time for a whole new thing. It's time for the next thing. You walked in those clothes for a while. It served its purpose. And just like that guy who doesn't want to get rid of that old pair of socks or underwear, they're going to fall apart. And it's just time for, honey, you need a new pair. You need a new pair. And sometimes it's not right to patch the old. Sometimes it's right to discard and to embrace a brand new thing or the next things. And sometimes it's important, too, to recognize as well, like the two pieces of cloth, the old and the new, to recognize and accept that certain things, folks, are just not compatible. Sometimes two things may be completely fine individually, but we need to learn they just don't work together. They're just incompatible. And it may be this is fine, and it may be this is fine, but they're just not compatible to be joined together. Sometimes that applies to relationships. Certainly, a Christian should not be unequally yoked with an unchristian. But I will tell you this, having enough years of experience as a Christian, having raised three daughters and, and, and seen them find spouses, sometimes even two Christians are not compatible. So don't force it in single desperation. If you're not compatible with that person, then recognize that and realize sometimes that's just the way it is. Two things aren't meant to be joined together and in all different ways. Sometimes I think, you know, we as Christians, oh, I don't want to be on. Some, look, Paul and Barnabas at one point said, look, we're just not compatible to serve together anymore. And they went their different ways. And they made it. So sometimes we, we have to recognize this reality. Look what Jesus says, verse 22. No one also puts new wine into old wineskins. He uses another analogy here. Or else the new wine will burst the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Again, he uses another illustration of mixing things together, right? that are incompatible, particularly, again, something older and something new that's fluid and changing and is going to be adjusting along the way. In that day, they did not store wine in glass jars, but typically put it in animal skins. And they all knew and understood that when you put brand new wine into new wine skins, that worked because then as the fermentation process happened and the gases were released, those new wineskins, which were still tender and pliable, they could stretch and adjust, and they could handle the process of change because the newer wineskins were still flexible, and they were able to allow movement, and they protected the valuable wine so that it did not get lost or ruined. And what they understood, and that's why he says here, no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else that new wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the skins would both be lost and ruined, that once wine skins had flexed and stretched at an earlier season, 
that eventually what happened is as they aged, they dried and they hardened by sunlight, and they got much more stiff and rigid once they took shape, and they were no longer flexible like they were originally. And if you tried to put brand new wine into old wineskins, it wouldn't work because the new wine would naturally flex and adjust. It needed room to, to make changes, and those old wineskins were in a fixed position, and they would not allow or accommodate handling change or adjustment, and therefore both the wineskins themselves, the older ones, and the, the valuable wine within would get ruined and lost as the skins would burst. That's why Jesus says there in verse 22, new wine that's going to flex and adjust and move and change, it must be, you notice his language, it must be put into new wineskins that are flexible and willing to allow changes to happen. Now, wine is one of the metaphors we find in the Bible for the work of the Spirit of God as he moves. And the fresh work of the Spirit of the Lord was happening through the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came to earth and was ministering. And it was bringing a change from God. It was bringing changes, much needed changes. And those changes were causing a real struggle and it was stretching the established religious system. And it was stretching the religious leaders. They had become rigid and stiff in their religious formality foremost, and their hearts had become hardened, and the way of Jesus working and ministering and what he was teaching was pushing against their ideas. And again, Jesus did not come to just improve what they already had. Jesus came to bring a brand new way altogether, and he was offering to mankind this new wine of the Spirit of the Lord, if you would, a new way to relate to God directly through him, directly through Jesus. You didn't need to go through the temple veil anymore. You could come to God directly through Jesus, and he wanted them to become humble in spirit and flexible in faith to yield to his authority as the Son of God and be open to the transition and the change that God was bringing at that time. But that meant they were going to have to set aside their old ideas. They were going to have to be open to change and adjustment. And they were struggling to yield to this realization that Jesus was the promised Savior. And that he was indeed the Messiah. And if they weren't willing to adjust and they became rigid like those old wineskins, that stubborn religious mindset would ruin the awkward or the wonderful work of the Lord in a very unfortunate and awkward way, they would cause both to end up being very damaged and defiled. And so Jesus here is in some ways cautioning them that yes, the way of Jesus was indeed new, but it was right. It was the only way to God, according to Jesus. It was the way to properly get to heaven. And you can sense Jesus in the midst of these statements saying to them, look, I know what I'm doing is new to you. I know it's new to you. And I know it's not how it's been. But Jesus is saying, yield to the change. Accept the transition. Be open to what is going on because Jesus will say, this new thing that you're struggling to embrace, I assure you it's from God. 
because I'm God. (laughs) And Jesus was, in a sense, trying to encourage their hearts, let the process unfold. Don't resist it. This is actually an opportunity for your good, and you don't want to lose this opportunity. This is the Lord seeking to bring this change and transition. And I think the lesson we take from this, Jesus talking about the new wine not into old wineskins, but new wineskins, is that sometimes, folks, when there is a fresh work of the Spirit of the Lord that's beginning to happen, there is always going to be a need for flexibility. There's a need to be flexible in our own hearts, in our inward spirit, and to be open to the new thing that the Spirit of the Lord is doing. And we have to, at times, be careful that our hearts don't become stiff and rigid and dull in such a way where because of familiarity, wherever it may be, that we are not open and yielded to a fresh work of the Spirit of the Lord if he's trying to bring something to pass in and through our lives, but that we would yield and be flexible and be open and, and willing to adjust in faith and obedience to what the Lord's doing. Let God do what he's doing. And in the same way, again, for families or for churches, it is a bummer at times if we become so stiff and rigid to how things have always been. This is how they've always been. I mean, I see how it goes on. You know, people can even walk into the sanctuary. They're in our seat. Don't they know we sit in that section? I know you sit in certain sections. From up here, I see, especially if you're here week after week, I, I know. That's always where John and Missy sit. If they're on vacation, I know they're on vacation. Right? And so we, we, we get so rigid in the smallest ways, and then, of course, in, in the larger areas, too. Wait a minute. This is what we've always done as a church. We're going to do something new? something new, man, you mean we're going to have to adjust a little bit, be flexible, walk in faith, be open to letting the Holy Spirit work in a different way or a unique manner. And again, we can be guilty of this same thing. So sad if when the Lord's seeking to do something, and particularly a new thing, that requires change and yielding if we miss that or we resist that. Or we in some ways become guilty of ruining it because we don't allow the spirit room to work in the way that he may want to. Well, verse 23, Jesus addresses this next situation that arises over the Sabbath. It says that as he went through the grain fields together with his disciples on the Sabbath, he says, as they went, they began to pluck heads of grain. And then the Pharisees said to him again, they confront him, look, Why do they now do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the next recorded event here reveals the offense of the Pharisees over their idea of the disciples of Jesus and their activity violating, from their perspective, the Sabbath day. Now, important, again, by way of grasping the context and the backdrop, to properly understand what the Sabbath day was as God established it, and then secondly, what the Pharisees had basically, in a sense, uh, if you would, kind of brought to pass as their idea of how to properly observe Sabbath from their own perspective. The Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, was something that God instituted in the Mosaic law as a sacred day for the nation of Israel for their welfare 
to focus upon God and as a covenant sign between him and the chosen people, the nation Israel. It was to be a day of rest, to be refreshed. God made the heavens and the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And God gave this Sabbath day of rest. Exodus 31 describes it this way. God said, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days, work is to be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. And the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it, listen, for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It was also a covenant sign between God and Israel, the Jewish people. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So God's heart was the Sabbath was a day of rest, a day of refreshment and blessing for mankind, where they would cease from their work and their labors and enjoy rest and focus completely upon God and enjoy his presence. Sadly, the Pharisees in their religious zeal, had took something intended to be a blessing for the people, and they had turned it into a major burden in the people's lives. They could not simply be thankful for the opportunity not to work and be refreshed. They had to describe what it meant not to work and then work really hard to not work. And so the Pharisees, and you can study this out yourself, put through all these efforts of rules and regulations of what it meant to properly keep the Sabbath. Well, I know God said don't work, but we need to make clear what it means not to work. And so in the Mishnah and the Talmud and their writings, they, they established 39 different categories of forbidden acts with lists of rules. Within each of the 39 categories of things that would violate Sabbath, being considered work. The Talmud devoted 24 chapters just how to observe Sabbath properly. For example, it was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig, or that would be considered work. Only enough ink should be carried in a scribe's pen to write two letters, because more than that would be work. You could only walk so many steps, or else that would be considered burdensome, and that would be work. Clothes could not be shaken out before putting them on, lest an insect be killed in the process, and that would be hunting, which is work. You could not bathe on the Sabbath day because if any water spilled out of the vessel or the tub that you were in and it fell onto the dirt, and the dirt, in a sense, made a little roll or the floor got some water on it, if it was a wooden floor, that was perceived as washing and that was work. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath day. So if you spit on the Sabbath day and your loogie rolled in the dirt, that was like plowing. Imagine this. You're trying to stop your seven. Don't spit, son. Do not spit all day long because that'll be perceived as plowing and you might get stoned to death. Do you see what I'm saying? And so they had all these meticulous rules and regulations of what was forbidden. You know, you, you couldn't boil an egg. I mean, just 
you couldn't buy anything, sell anything. And so they had all these standards of what was quantified as work. And here all of a sudden, the people were overwhelmed and burdened because it was exhausting to try and remember and to maintain all of these code of standards and these little rules and rituals that were going on. And these were not scriptural prohibitions. They were just man-made interpretations. Now, it's with that backdrop as we read our verses here that what was happening was this. Jesus and his disciples, they're coming home from Sabbath worship. They're coming home from synagogue worship. And like you on a Sunday, they're on the way home. They're passing through the grain fields. They're hungry. It's, it's synagogue Saturday. They just worshiped. So they're hungry on their way home. They're walking through the grain fields. And it says they began to pluck the heads of grain. So they pluck the heads of grain. They rub them together in their hands. They're popping the kernels in their mouth. They're basically snacking as they're walking through the grain field on the way home. And they're enjoying a snack. Well, all of a sudden, the sin-sniffing Pharisees... <laughs> Did someone sin? They jump out of the grain fields. What are they doing? Harvesting. Your disciples are harvesting on the Sabbath day. What are they doing? They're violating the Sabbath. That looks like harvesting. They're separating the wheat from the chaff, and, and in their minds, that's considered work. So again, they're violating the Sabbath laws. Now, they weren't violating the Word of God. They were violating religious traditions. They were violating their ritualistic ideas. They're not keeping our rules that we think are spiritual. Jesus said to them, verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. Notice, interesting, Jesus corrects their wrong heart attitude spiritually and their wrong thinking and perception spiritually by bringing their attention to what? Scripture. Jesus said, you're thinking wrong spiritually. Haven't you guys read your Bibles? How interesting that Jesus here indicates the problem is their lack of familiarity with the entirety of the Word of God. And Jesus said, if you had a little better understanding of the thorough teaching of Scripture you would have a better understanding of what spiritual life is really about and you wouldn't be so bothered right now. And how interesting. I think sometimes one of the greatest struggles at times is just a lack of thorough understanding of the entirety of the Word of God. People hyperfixate on one little thing when the reality is, read your whole Bible, man. Get to know the heart of God. Stop focusing on straining gnats and swallowing camels. Read your whole Bible, man. And perhaps when we know the Word of God thoroughly and in a way that we should, it helps our own spiritual reasoning and perspective. Jesus describes an event that took place in 1 Samuel 21. Maybe they were neglecting to remember that. And Jesus said, don't you remember how on an occasion David and his men, as they were on the run from Saul, and they were hungry and they were in need and they were faint and they were struggling, and David went to the house of God because he knew that's where he could get spiritual help. That's where he could get love, and that's where he could get assistance. And he thought, you know what? God loves people. God helps people. We're starving. And he goes to the house of God, and there he speaks with a priest, tells him that him and his men are hungry. And in that moment, as he shares the story, the priest's heart is stirred with compassion for David and his men. And he says, look, to be very honest, I don't have anything but the showbread from the table of showbread, and that's, that is prescribed for the priests to eat. 
but he understood, you know what? At the end of the day, God loves people, and he's compassionate, and he's merciful, and this is all the food I have, and he permitted David on that rare occasion to eat the showbread together with his men, and in a sense, showed that keeping regulation of the law was set aside in that instance to compassionately help human life and to demonstrate that God puts more value on people than observing rules and rituals and religious traditions. And thus the spiritual sensitivity on that rare occasion of that event of the high priest and David put the value on mankind's welfare as God's primary concern. Think about it. David broke Mosaic law in that story, and God was merciful. All they're doing is violating religious traditions, and the Pharisees are all hot and heavy because traditions aren't being kept and being observed. To which point Jesus says in verse 27, the Sabbath, here's his point, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's, you got this all mixed up. God, he says, God created the Sabbath to bless mankind, to give them rest and refreshment. Again, who is Jesus? God. He says, I know why the Sabbath was created. I was with the Father when we created it. It was to bless mankind, to give them rest and refreshment. It wasn't created so that man would have an obligatory requirement to follow. And he says, we didn't create humanity to follow religious rules. He says, we created the Sabbath to bless mankind to give them refreshment so they could focus upon the Lord that day and be able to cease from their labors. Verse 28, he says, Therefore the Son of Man, that's a messianic title, remember from Daniel, he's claiming to be God there. The Son of Man is also Lord, ruler of the Sabbath. So Jesus, being God who instituted the Sabbath, claims the messianic title as being God, and he says here, listen, here's how I know that I'm right on this. And unfortunately, boys, you're wrong because I'm the ruler of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I understand what the Sabbath's purpose really was. And not just in that day, but in the bigger picture. Because the Sabbath, just like most Old Testament aspects of the law, ultimately was to foreshadow things about the person and the life and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as Jesus became our sacrificial Passover lamb, the lamb of God, even as Jesus becomes our great high priest and mediator, Jesus also became our Sabbath rest spiritually. Hebrews chapter 4, Colossians chapter 2 tell us that, that Christ becomes our Sabbath rest because in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished in his work on the cross and resurrection, we now cease from all labor to try and work to be right with God. And we can rest in faith. We don't have to work to be right with God. We don't have to work to earn God's acceptance. We rest in faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's why Jesus in Matthew 11, when he saw the worn out, tired, exhausted people in his day from all the religious burdens said, Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and have you burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Not having to strive to work, but to rest in Jesus. How wonderful. How wonderful. 
to not have to strive and work and labor to try and make yourself right with God or keep yourself right with God, but to rest in Jesus and what he did and to love him and to walk with him. That is being spiritually sensitive. 